are now listening to Corrupted Hearts Podcast. Get ready to dive deep into crime, conspiracy, and all things corrupted. Hello, friends. It's your host, Brooklyn, and welcome back to Corrupted Hearts. As this is a new podcast for not only me, but all of those listening, I'm trying to spitball a few episodes out. So with that being said, we are now on episode two. I wanted to go back in time a little bit. So today we're going to be talking about Bonnie and Clyde. These have always been pretty well-known names for me, at least. Their story was turned into a musical when I actually, that I actually took part of in high school. Um, I actually took on the role of Bonnie, and it was a lot of fun despite the dark past that it has. I don't know every detail of Bonnie and Clyde. We briefly learned about them in high school, I think. I'm pretty sure. I want to say that's like in the back of my mind somewhere. But um, this will be a learning experience for not only you, maybe, but also for me as well. Uh, Whether you are commuting from one place or the other, sitting at home, just vibing, let's get into the infamous Bonnie and Clyde. I am firstly going to start out with both Bonnie and Clyde's kind of backstories and how they came to be Bonnie and Clyde together. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born in Rowena, Texas in 1910. She was the second of three children born to her parents, Charles Robert Parker, and her mother, Emma Parker. Bonnie's father was a bricklayer and died when she was only four years old. After the death of her father, Bonnie's mom, Emma, moved herself and her kids back to her parents' house in Cement City, which was an industrial suburb in West Dallas, Texas. Bonnie's mother, Emma, worked as a seamstress and was the only one bringing money in, so it's kind of safe to say that Bonnie had a poor upbringing. While Bonnie was in her second year of high school, she met a guy named Roy Thornton. They apparently fell very quickly in love because both Bonnie and Roy dropped out of school and got married. They got married on September 26, 1926, only six days before Bonnie turned 16. Unfortunately, their marriage wasn't the best. Roy frequently left Bonnie alone and was constantly getting into trouble with the law. Their marriage was essentially over after Bonnie dealing with this constantly, but they never got an official divorce, even though they never saw each other again after January 1929. Roy was sentenced to five years in prison after committing a robbery in 1933. He also attempted to escape multiple times at different prisons. Eventually, it caught up to him, and he was killed trying to escape Huntsville State Prison in 1937. When Bonnie left Roy after their failed marriage, she moved back in with her mother, Emma, and became a waitress in Dallas. Bonnie kept a diary and would write of her loneliness, her impatience with how her life was going, and how she loved photography. We are now going to move into about Clyde's kind of start to his life. Clyde Chestnut Barrow was born in Ellis County, Texas, which is southeast of Dallas in 1909. 
He was born in a poor farming family and was the fifth child of seven children, born to his father, Henry Basil Barrow, and his mother, Cumi Talitha Walker. His family eventually moved into West Dallas in the early 1920s because of the migration pattern of moving from rural areas to cities. The Barrows lived underneath their wagon when they first moved to West Dallas until they were able to get enough money to buy a tent. Clyde was 17 when he f was first arrested in 1926. He was running from the police when they confronted him over a rental car that he failed to return. Soon after his first arrest, he got his second with his brother Buck. They stole turkeys and had them in their possession. Clyde did have a few real jobs between 1927 and 1929, but would still continue to steal cars, rob stores, and crack open safes. Now we are going to get into when Bonnie and Clyde first met. A few people pointed out that their first meeting was at Clarence Clay's house on January 5th, 1930. Clyde was 20 years old at the time and Bonnie was 19. Bonnie was out of work due to breaking her arm and was staying with a friend of hers that was helping her recover. Bonnie was in the kitchen making hot chocolate when Clyde entered and they both fell hard for each other instantly. After their first meeting, they spent almost every second together in the following weeks until Clyde was arrested and convicted of auto theft. He was sent to Eastham Prison Farm in April of 1930. He had just turned 21 recently. Clyde was able to escape the farm very quickly with the weapon that Bonnie had smuggled him. When he was shortly recaptured and taken back to prison. Clyde was sexually assaulted numerous times while in prison. Eventually, he had had enough and attacked and killed the man who kept assaulting him. He had killed him with a pipe and ultimately crushed his skull. This was Clyde's first murder. However, he didn't take the downfall for this. It was an inmate who was already serving a life sentence. He claimed the responsibility for the man's death. Clyde was not a big fan of having to do hard labor while in prison. I mean, who is, but okay. So he had two of his toes chopped off. Though it's unclear whether he did this to himself or had another inmate do it. But because of this, he spent the rest of his life walking with a limp. But hey, he got out of hard labor, right? <laughs> well, only six days after having his toes chopped off, he was set free. Clyde's mother had petitioned for him to be released without him knowing. He was paroled from prison on February 2nd, 1932, and something about him was different. His sister Marie said, Something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. Which honestly is kind of understandable considering he was sexually assaulted many, many times while he was incarcerated. A fellow inmate of Clyde's said he watched him go from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. Prison had changed Clyde and not for the better. After leaving prison, Clyde went on a spree of robbing grocery stores and gas stations. His favorite weapon was said to be the M1918 Browning automatic rifle. Clyde's goal in all of this wasn't to gain any fame or money. 
He just wanted revenge against the Texas prison system for all of the abuse that he endured while he was serving time. So now enters when we start talking about Bonnie joining in on all of these crimes. In 1932, Clyde and Ralph Foltz, a former inmate turned friend, began really digging into going on all of these robberies at gas stations and stores in order to make enough money to launch a raid against Eastham Prison. Bonnie and Ralph were arrested during a failed burglary of, hard of a hardware store in Kaufman. They were attempting to steal firearms. Bonnie went to jail for the first time, but was released only a few months later because the grand jury failed to indict her. Ralph Fultz wasn't so lucky and ended up serving time for the crime and never joined back with, with Bonnie and Clyde's gang. A few weeks before Bonnie's release from jail on April 30th, Clyde was acting as the getaway driver for a robbery in Hillsboro. The store owner was shot and killed. The wife of the store owner identified Clyde from police photographs to be one of the shooters, even though he stayed in the car the entire time while the robbery was taking place. Although Bonnie was already released from jail at this time, she did not take part in this next one. On August 5th, Clyde, along with Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer, were all just having a night out. They were drinking moonshine at a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma. The three men were approached by Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and a deputy, Eugene C. Moore, in the parking lot, and all hell broke loose. Clyde and Hamilton opened fire, severely wounding Maxwell and killing Moore. Deputy, deputy Eugene Moore then became the first law officer that Clyde and his gang killed. They would eventually go on to kill nine more throughout their time. On October 11th, they allegedly killed Howard Hall, a store owner in Sherman, Texas, but it has never been confirmed that it was Clyde and his gang. W.D. Jones, a friend of Clyde's family, joined both Clyde and Bonnie and their gang on Christmas Eve of 1932. He was only 16. The three of them left Dallas that very night and went on to kill Doyle Johnson the very next day, on Christmas Day, while they were attempting to steal his car and temple. Little did the gang know that police had set up a trap for another criminal on January 6, 1933, in Tarrant County. But Bonnie and Clyde and Jones were the ones who were wandering into it. This resulted in Clyde killing Deputy Malcolm Davis. In March of 1933, Clyde's brother Buck was given a full pardon and released from prison. Buck and his wife Blanche joined Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones at the temporary hideout in Joplin, Missouri. It wasn't really much of a house at all. It was more of a garage-looking place, so very much temporary. I don't imagine it was very great living conditions, especially for five people. Um, I will post a picture of it on the Corrupted Hearts Instagram, which I will link in the show notes. Family members have said that Buck and Blanche were just there to visit and actually tried to get Clyde to surrender to the police. It obviously really didn't phase Clyde because nothing changed. But they stayed and they all ended up having many nights of loud, alcohol-filled card games. This was apparently a very quiet neighborhood, so I'm surprised that no one came to check it out. 
Blanche stated that they were buying a case of beer every day and that the three men were always coming and going at all hours. However, someone did end up reporting all of these loud commotions to the Joplin Police Department. The Joplin Police Department then got together a five-man force in two separate cars to confront whoever was making all this noise at this address on April 13th. The Joplin police originally just thought that they would stumble upon some bootleggers living there, but to their surprise, they ran into Bonnie and Clyde and their gang. Both Clyde and Buck, along with Jones, opened fire and instantly killed Detective Harry L. McGinnis and fatally wounded Constable J.W. Harriman. The three men continued opening fire on the officers, pushing them back to hide behind a large oak tree. The bullets pelted the tree, spraying the officers with splintered wood. Clyde took this time to hop into the car with Buck, Jones, and Bonnie close behind. They picked up Blanche from the street while she was chasing after her dog, Snowball. Surviving officers testified that they shot only 14 rounds during the shootout. One hit Ralph Jones on his side. Another was deflected off a button on Clyde's suit and one ricocheted off a wall grazing Buck. While the group was able to escape from Joplin, but had to leave behind a lot of their most prized possessions. A large arsenal of guns was found, Buck's parole papers, a camera with undeveloped film, and a poem handwritten by Bonnie herself. The police had the film from the camera developed and found many pictures of Clyde, Bonnie, and Jones pointing guns at each other and posing. After traveling through Texas and as far north as Minnesota over the next three months, the group robbed two banks, one in Indiana and the other in Minnesota. While stealing a car, the group kidnapped the car's owner, Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone. This was one of the many kidnapping events they did between 1932 and 1934. They usually kidnap their robbery victims and even sometimes police officers, I guess the nice thing about this is that they would usually release their kidnapped victims far from home and give them enough money to make it back. Like, okay, what was the point, but okay. As these stories became more and more popular in the news headlines, the group also became more violent. They wouldn't think twice about having to shoot someone down that got in their way. It didn't matter whether you were a police officer or an innocent bystander. With their growing popularity, the gang found it harder and harder to be able to evade the police and stay out of sight. They could go longer, no, they could no longer go into restaurants or motels to seek refuge. They then started having to camp out so that they could remain hidden from public eyes. All of this also started to strain the group's relationships. They were all five stuck in the same car constantly, which led to verbal fights. In April, Jones was helping out with an auto theft in which he was driving the getaway car. He instead drove away using the car to get away from the rest of the gang. He eventually came back on June 8th. Clyde ignored construction signs on a bridge in Wellington, Texas on June 10th while driving around with Bonnie and Ralph Jones. The car flipped into a ravine and Bonnie suffered third-degree burns to her right leg. It was either caused by a gasoline fire or the car's battery acid, but has never been confirmed to either. 
Jones said about this situation that Bonnie was burned so badly that they weren't sure if she was going to live. Which, I mean, when you're fugitives constantly running from the law, you probably aren't going to just waltz up to a hospital anytime soon. Bonnie was struggling to walk, but was making it work. When she wasn't hopping around on her good leg, Clyde would carry her around. While Bonnie's wounds were on the mend, Buck and Ralph Jones robbed and murdered town marshal Henry D. Humphrey in Alma, Arkansas. After this, they need to leave needed to leave quickly to avoid being caught, so despite Bonnie's condition, they all hit the road. In July of 1933, the gang settled in at the Red Crown Tourist Court, just south of Platte City, Missouri. The gang rented two brick cabins that connected by a garage. While there were a few of the people did become suspicious of them, they kind of just continued living unbothered and just dealt with the stares and whispers that they received. Clyde and Jones went into town and purchased crackers, cheese, bandages, and atropine sulfate to help Bonnie's leg. The druggist, which is what we call a pharmacist today, notified the sheriff Holt Coffee. He then put the cabins that the gang was staying at under surveillance. Coffee had already been warned by Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma, Texas, no, Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas law enforcement to be on the lookout for people they don't recognize buying these types of items. Coffee also contacted Captain Baxter, who then called for reinforcements from Kansas City. They also brought in an armored car. Sheriff Coffee then led these officers to the cabins around 11 p.m., armed with submachine guns. A gunfight started immediately, however, the officers' guns were no match for the stolen ones that Clyde had accumulated. The gang saw a way to escape after a bullet hit the armored car's horn system. The horn went off and the officers mistook it for a call of ceasefire. The gang was able to escape once again, however, Bucket suffered a horrific head wound. His forehead had a large hole in it, exposing part of his brain. Blanche was also nearly blinded by fragments of glass. Duxfield Park was the gang's next location. It was an abandoned theme park near Dexter, Iowa. They began camping out there on July 24th. Buck was not doing well. Sometimes he was somewhat conscious, but still kind of able to eat and talk. But he had suffered major blood loss, and Clyde and Jones even started digging him a grave. Residents in the town started to notice this strange group of people and their bloody bandages camping out. Concerned, they informed local officers, which then identified them as the Clyde Barrow Gang. Local police officers and around a hundred onlookers surrounded the gang. The Barrow Gang was soon under fire and didn't put up much of a fight. Clyde, Bonnie, and Jones escaped on foot while Buck was shot in the back and Blanche was captured. Buck died from his head injury and pneumonia after getting surgery five days later at the hospital in Perry, Iowa. Once again, it was down to three. Clyde, Bonnie, and Ralph Jones traveled around for the next six weeks. They went as far as Colorado, north, back towards Minnesota, and then to Mississippi. During these six weeks on the run, the gang continued committing armed robberies. 
Clyde and Jones even robbed an armory to stock their arsenal back up in Platteville, Illinois, on August 20th. In early September, the gang was missing home and decided to risk going back to Dallas to see their families. None of them had seen their families in over four months at this point. This is when Jones parted ways with Bonnie and Clyde. His mother had moved to Houston, and he was going to see her there. Jones was arrested in Houston on September 16th and returned back to Dallas. During the autumn months, Clyde was still doing several robberies with other short-term accomplices. Both Clyde and Bonnie's family were busy tending to Bonnie and her still horrific medical needs. On November 22nd, they just barely escaped being arrested while they were trying to see family members near Sowers, Texas. The police were waiting for them there, yet Clyde felt like something was up and drove past all of them. They opened fire on Bonnie and Clyde's car as they sped away. They got away, but not before a bullet, a bullet struck them both in the leg. On November 28th, a murder indictment was delivered against Bonnie and Clyde from the Dallas Grand Jury for the murder of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis, which happened just 10 months before in January. This is now the beginning of the end for Bonnie and Clyde, and I just want to thank you so much if you've stuck around and made it this far. I know that it's a lot to digest, but we are getting through this together. On January 16, 1934, Clyde orchestrated the raid he said he was always going to do on the prison system in Texas. He orchestrated a breakout for a few of the men that took part in his gang at some point. This breakout was named the East End Breakout, which is the prison that Clyde was treated so terribly in. Clyde had finally achieved something that he wanted for so long. He was able to get his revenge on the Texas prison system. One of Clyde's gang members fatally shot Major John Krausen, and this absolutely enraged Texas and the federal government. All eyes were set on hunting down and killing Bonnie and Clyde, as well as their gang members. Texas Department of Corrections got in touch with former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hammer and pleaded with him to hunt down Bonnie and Clyde. He accepted this assignment despite being retired. He had one task, hunt down the Barrow Gang. On February, February 10th, Hammer started his mission full force, living out of his car and always staying just a town or two behind Bonnie and Clyde. The Barrow Gang did not stop their reign of terror while being tracked. They went on to kill three more people. Highway Patrolman H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant, as well as 60-year-old Constable William Campbell. The public was absolutely outraged at these murders, and they were posted all over for everyone to see. Bonnie was once seen to maybe have some clemency considering she wasn't actually doing the killings, but that all changed when she was confirmed to have her hand in pulling the trigger herself, killing H.D. Murphy. By May 1934, Hammer had been hot on Bonnie and Clyde's tail, learning their every movement, finding out where they go and at what time. They were very consistent in their movements, and this made Hammer's job easy. He knew where they would be going next and started to formulate a plan. 
Bonnie and Clyde were due to visit the family of one of their gang members in Louisiana, and Hammer was determined to take them down once and for all. On either May 21st or the 22nd, it's kind of unclear of the exact date of when, but four officers from Texas set up their ambush along Louisiana State Highway 154 south of Gibsland. These men waited all throughout the night and the next day, depending on whether it was the 21st or the 22nd or not. Around 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, the men were still still concealed in the bushes along the highway, but they were ready to give up. Bonnie and Clyde were still not there. Moments later, they heard a car approaching at a high speed. The vehicle was a Ford V8 belonging to Clyde Barrow. The now six officers began opening fire once Clyde began slowing the car down to see what was going on. Clyde was shot in the head and died immediately. Bonnie could be heard screaming. The officers fired around 130 rounds into the car, emptying out their weapons. Coroner J.L. Wade wrote that Clyde had 17 entrance wounds on his body and Bonnie had 26. Many of these were headshots. One bullet even severed Clyde's spinal column. The bodies were said to be extremely difficult to embalm due to the bullet holes. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be buried side by side. However, this didn't happen. Bonnie's family wouldn't allow it. Over 20,000 people attended Bonnie's funeral. It made it difficult for her family to even make it to her grave site. She was laid to rest on May 26, 1934, and she was buried at the Fish Trap Cemetery, but later moved in 1945 to the Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. Clyde's funeral remained private and was held on May 25, 1934 at sunset. He was buried at Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas next to his brother Marvin. In the summer of 1934, bank robbery and kidnapping were made into federal offenses. As of now, Bonnie's last surviving relative, her niece, is campaigning to have her aunt buried next to Clyde. Okay, so the story of Bonnie and Clyde is absolutely mind-blowing. And I know that that was a lot to take in all at once. Trust me, I am still currently trying to take it all in. While I was researching this case, I was so amazed by how much I did not know. I had no idea that all of this took place and that there was more to the names Bonnie and Clyde. I hope that you found this as interesting as I did. I certainly did learn a lot while researching. I am now exhausted and will be rewarding myself with sleep. I already have some ideas for upcoming episodes and I can't wait to share it with you. So be on the lookout for new episodes and don't be afraid to come along with me on this journey. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you in the next episode of Corrupted Hearts.